Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta's architecture holds special interest for street photographer Brandon May. Later this hour, we'll hear why the people depicted in his artwork are as important to the photos as the buildings themselves. First... When 26-year-old Matt Paxton helped an elderly lady from church downsize her large house, he didn't know that would be a transformative experience. In fact, he decided that what he wanted to do with his life after that was help people simplify their lives by realizing the value of their memories the host of the popular Emmy-nominated PBS show Legacy List, and 13-year veteran of Hoarders on A&E, now has written a book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. He joins us now via Zoom. Matt Paxton, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks for having me. With your busy life in television now, why did you want to write a book? Well, I kept getting the same questions over and over and over. And I thought, gosh, if this many people are asking me these questions, I probably need to get it down on paper. And it was also right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I thought, gosh, I'm never going to have time like this again. Mm. I should really get it down on paper. Well, it also reads as something of a memoir in addition to being a decluttering guide. You have been a decluttering and organizing expert for over 20 years. Matt, what are some of the unusual examples of hoarding that you have seen up close? Oh, every time I think I've seen it all, I see something new. And I always say I'm very lucky to have seen these things because it gives you the extremities that you can then write a book about, right? I had a guy that had an airplane he had reassembled in his basement, and he liked to dry out his clothes, his shirts, on the wing. (laughs) And he said, nothing dries a shirt 
like an airplane wing. Oh. And I was like, I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. It gives new meaning to air dry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a full plane in his basement. He had taken the whole thing apart and put it back together in his basement. How big was his basement? It was a, about a 30-foot-long wing. I mean, it was it was really fascinating. Engineering-wise, it was fascinating how he had done it. He had done it by himself, you know, day by day, screw by screw. And people often forget that hoarders are incredibly intelligent, like intelligent at a, at a much higher level than the average person. And it was, you know, finding things like that is, is when you start to find that out. I found, gosh, I mean, you find art, you find, of course, books. Books is always the number one thing they find because in books, it's intelligence and information. And so most hoarders are incredibly intelligent. So they, they see the most value in books. Gosh, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we found a Picasso and two Salvador Dali's in an attic. Oh, what became of them? The Picasso was not a good Picasso. At the end of his life, Picasso would draw anything, like anything. <laughs> and he was just tr trying to get a date. You know, he was he was a bit of a ladies man at the end of his life. And so what he would oh, all his life. Yeah, yeah, I know. And so what he was notorious for was he would take a group of people out in New York City. He would take them all to dinner and then he would say, oh, well, I've got the check. And he would he would write a check and then he would draw something on the check knowing that the restaurateur would not cash it Ooh. because it's a Picasso. And so, but, you know, part of me thinks, well, that's kind of cheap. And then the other part of me is like, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, and this was one of those checks. And it was just an I had heard about it. I'd never seen one. So it was really kind of an honor to find it. But the, the dollies were, were straight up original dollies. And um, we had to call the lawyers. We had to call an appraiser. We had to call, you know, they had to be proper. You, you didn't even want to pick them up. You don't want to touch them because you don't want to mess them up. And those, uh, of course, at the end of the day, significantly changed that family's life in a financial situation. And, you know, Matt, I would think this also would confirm a hoarder's reason for hoarding, which is that you might have something really valuable amongst all that stuff you can't discern. Correct. And I almost wish I hadn't given that example for that exact reason, <laughs> right? Because you want people to think, hey, the stuff's just, it's just stuff. It's holding you back. But unfortunately, yeah, sometimes we do find really financially valuable stuff. And where in my career in the last really 10 years, I've transitioned a lot harder to, hey, let's focus on the memories, the emotional value, not the financial value. Because although a lot of times I find, you know, I do find really valuable financial things 90% of the time. It's just stuff that takes up space. Indeed. This book is deeply personal, and I was hoping you would share how the aftermath of your dad's unexpected death at 52 led to what would become your life's career. Yeah, my dad dying, you know, it made me clean up my first house. And, you know, for any kid, I was a kid, I was, I was 20. 24 when he died and uh you know your dad's your hero and that's what you want for any kid to believe is that your dad's your hero and, and my dad was my hero but it's funny my dad was an entrepreneur and so he would love nothing more than the fact that this gave me a job i mean my dad i i, I guarantee you he's smiling in heaven right now i'm like yeah man here he is he's been doing this for 20 years he's killing it he's on tv he's on radio like my dad would love this and so it just because of who my dad was, it does bring me pride to know that it gave me a career and it gave me purpose and I've been able to help thousands of people doing it. But yeah, I mean, at the time it was devastating. I mean, I, I lost my dad 
and then my stepfather and then two grandfathers all within about 18 months. And I was left with a lot to figure out and a lot to clean up. And it did eventually, you know, create this career, but it was, I was just a lost soul at the time. And I appreciate you saying, you know, it's an emotional book because it is, I mean, I really, there's a lot of, lot of people and books out there that just give you tips to clean. And I just flat out from my 20 years experience, I don't believe it's about the tips. We all know how to clean. We can't clean because we're stuck emotionally because we loved these people that are attached to the stuff. And so I, I, I did take a right turn and I said, I'm going to write an emotional book. I'm not going to write a book about tips because there's probably already enough books out there that give you just tips. Yeah. And you also provide a lot of kindness in it for your readers. You set out guidelines as steps, and these are chapter headings, nine of them. Yeah. Step one is uncovering the stories behind the stuff. Why is this the first step? Well, stuff holds us back from living, and I'm, I've been lucky enough to help thousands of families, and I've seen so many families, they want more for their, their adults. They want more for their, their ancestors. And, and oftentimes the, the people over 80 are, are, they don't want to get rid of their stuff. And so it holds them back from living. And so I say, it's, it's not the stuff that holds you back. It's the stories, the emotions attached to that stuff. And so I really just try to push that, Hey man, if you tell these stories, what I've seen in my life is the more you tell these stories at the beginning, the easier it is to get rid of the little smaller things that don't actually matter as much. And that's when it comes back to that emotional value versus financial value. Why do you think that pain is the underlying reason people hoard? You mentioned intellect a moment ago. In the book, you write that pain is the greatest reason for hoarding. Yeah, hoarders... It's something they do currently. And let me let me say that twice. Hoarding is a current situation. It's not a lifelong thing. And the reason I say that is I had a lady one time get up on stage. I was giving a speech and this lady stands up in the crowd and she goes, I'm a hoarder today. I wasn't 10 years ago and I won't be in 10 more years. She goes, I also like pizza. I'm a wonderful dancer. I'm a really good mathematician. Like she gives me this list of all the amazing things about her. And she goes, I'm just struggling right now with hoarding. And the place erupted. It was like a movie. People screamed and they're like, yes. And, and she goes, stop calling me a hoarder. I'm just someone that struggles with it. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And it was awesome. I mean, I could not script it better. But what I interacted with so many hoarders, I just learned that, you know, something bad happened to them. And either they lost somebody, someone died, there was a divorce, or a lot of times it was abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, oftentimes emotional. And what I learned is they're all hurting. And so they go to fill that void with stuff, right? Their happiness and their self-worth, they're trying to, to build that up with stuff. And I learned in my own life, I'm very open about it in the book. Um, I've had a lot of struggles myself. We all, when things are bad, we look for happiness and self-worth often in the wrong places, right? Some people do it in, in exercise. Some people do it in alcohol. Some people do it in drugs. Some people do it in faith. Some people do it in work. And I'm blumping all of those positive and negative things into one pile because we all look to fill that void with something better. And that is what hoarders do. They just do it with stuff. And so I just, I, compassion is probably my biggest tool and my biggest strength. And the reason is 
I had decades that I needed that compassion. I mean, my 20s were a disaster. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm proud and not proud of it, you know, but, but I'm lucky to be in a place where I can use all those mistakes to then teach other people to be compassionate and caring towards the loved ones in their lives that are suffering. And a lot of times that compassion is needed when you're going through your stuff because it's a mm. frustrating thing, man. It's very frustrating. Yeah, looking at stuff forces you to confront what you've been through. I got a great example of that. I had two sisters, let's say they were 65 to 75, and they were fighting over a piano. Neither of those two ladies played the piano. They were fighting over the piano, who got it? And finally, the one sister just said, I don't want you to have it because dad wanted you to have it. Dad loved you more than me. Ooh. And I just stayed quiet. And it's just me in the front row of these two very mature adult women that are acting like teenagers. And they were really going at it. And then finally she goes, well, when you kissed Tommy, blah, blah. And, she's, and I'm like, whoa, wait, back up. Who's Tommy? Tommy was a boyfriend in high school of one of the sisters. And apparently the younger sister kissed the boyfriend too. These are 70-year-old women fighting over a boy from 55 years ago. <laughs> and what it really came down to is the two sisters have been mad for 55 years about this dumb boy named Tommy. And it's coming out on a piano. And I said, all right, get your phone out. So we look, we went on Facebook and we looked up Tommy and uh, the years had not been kind to Tommy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I said, really ladies, this is what we're fighting over. And they finally started laughing and they had just had an emotional breakthrough. Like they finally, it wasn't even their dad. It was just a silly boy named Tommy. But they're both of their their feelings have been hurt for for 50 years, you know, and they finally they're like, oh, God, can we just get rid of the piano? Neither one of them really wanted it. They just <laughs> they just didn't want the other one to have it. And that's when you really realize uh, and, and, and anyone listening right now has a, an embarrassing story like that as well. Right. I did it myself. When I got divorced, I kept a dish because I just I just didn't want my ex-wife to have that dish you know, which was so silly. And I eventually gave it to her later in life because it was like, I don't, even, I don't even know what this dish is, some French dish. I didn't know what it was for, you know, and it was just spite, right? And so you do embarrassing things at points in life because you're hurt or you're, or you're happy. And a lot of times we hold on to stuff for those two reasons. We either are hurt or we're just so love that person that we hold on to it. But again, none of this is about the stuff. It's all about the emotion. What patience you have, Matt. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Matt Paxton of Legacy List on PBS. His new book is Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. Step two involves defining your finishing line. How does this give purpose to getting rid of stuff. Okay. So the step two, defining your finish line, that is really, it's a trick, right? To the reader. So many of my clients will call me and say, okay, I'm ready to start downsizing. I go, great. Where are you going? They go, oh, I don't know. I'm going to move someday. I go, great. I can't clean your house out until I know where you're going. And they're like, well, why? And I go, well, why would I pack you? You know, how can I pack you for vacation if I don't know if you're going to the beach or you're going skiing? They're like, well, what do you mean? And I learned that it, if you pack without actually knowing where you're going, then it's, it's actually procrastination. 
especially when it's an end of life pack, right? When you're going to that next, your last location for moving, if you're moving out of your house at 50 years, you have to be clear on where you're going. Because if not, you're going to pack up things you might need, or you're just going to get rid of everything, or you're going to get fully stuck. And so I tell everybody, I want to know what that plan is. Where are you going? Are you going to Florida to live closer to kids? Are you going to a community where you have independence? Are you going somewhere for healthcare? Whatever that is, that location, I want to know where. And then here's the key. I want to know the why. And this, uh, I learned this from my partner. She's a minimalist. And, and in minimalism, they really focus on the why. And this is something that's been new to my, to really my skill set is focusing on this why, because the why keeps you from quitting, right? Decluttering and downsizing and organizing. Other than exercising, it's the easiest thing to quit because we can just shut the door or we can shut the drawer, right? And so as soon as it gets hard, we can quit. But if you put the why in front of you, so like if it's, hey, I want to be I'm moving to an adult child's home. That's the where. The why is I want to be closer to my grandkids. Or I'm moving to Florida because there's better health care. Well, the why is I want to live longer. Right? And I actually write that why down and I put it on the wall in front of me in the room I'm working on because the why is what will keep you from quitting. And that's why it's so important. Matt, what is the 10-minute sweep? 10-minute sweep is the best way to get started. <laughs> so many people just think, oh my gosh, I got this huge garage and it's going to take me three weekends. And so they don't even start. The number one question for me is, where do I get started? How do I get started? And so I just say, just pick any area for 10 minutes. And I want you to clean every night for 10 minutes. It may not even be organizing. You might just be cleaning up the kitchen sink. I don't really care. I just want it to be small. I want it to be achievable and I want it to be consistent. And so I, I say 10 minutes, sweep, clean every night for 10 minutes, do that for a couple weeks. And, and, and believe it or not, sometimes, I mean, you can do the drunk drawer, you could do half a bookshelf. Really the space doesn't matter. A lot of times I say, just do the dishes every night for a week. I just clean, just go to bed with a dry sink. If you do that, you've gotten the habit and the consistency of doing it. So it really, it's not about what you've achieved. It's that you've gotten started and you've achieved something. And that becomes a habit. What are some of the rules for taking baby steps? Well, start small. Okay. You've got to be able to achieve it. So oftentimes I'll say like that drunk drawer, the top left corner of your kitchen, it's often filled with Bed Bath & Beyond coupons that are expired and uh, rubber bands right? and, pen, and pens that don't work right? and keys that you don't know where they go for. Those, that's an easy drawer that you can, you can get done in a short amount of time. And so it's important to know that you can achieve because if, if you pick the, you know, your 5,000 stacks of photos, you're not going to finish that in the first week and it's going to wear you down and you're going to quit. And so I always say start really small. I think junk, junk mail is a great place to start. If your dining room table has started to fill up with junk mail, that's a great place to start because it gives you a, a big visual win when you finish it. And so it's got to be achievable, not heavily emotional because if it's too heavy an emotion, you won't get through it. And you, and you just want to start small in, in time as well as space. And if you do that, you start to get excited about cleaning. And then the one I always talk about is tell the stories. The more stories you tell, the more excited you'll be about this. On that note, you give some advice that goes into the realm of counseling. What do you tell people about guilt and the importance of 
Self-love or self-confidence. Okay. Guilt is a huge part of downsizing if you're over 50. I don't like to break up age groups, but millennials do behave differently than the greatest generation. We just do. And I'm lucky to work with so many different age groups. And what I have found is over 50, we feel a guilt to hold on to things from deceased loved ones. And there's a couple quotes in the book. One is, you, you don't have to keep that old China from your great aunt because she's probably going to be okay with it. She's been dead for 30 years. And that was a really blunt quote. And I tried to put it in there as humor, but it's a fact, right? Like in my family, it was disguised in, well, what would your grandfather think? And that's what my mom would always say to me. And what I found was my mom had an obligation. She felt an emotional generational obligation to keep these items from the loved ones above us. And it was typically items from the dining room. And I promise you, under 40, we don't have that obligation. We don't feel that. It doesn't mean that we don't want your stuff. We just don't want that stuff. We want something else, right? And so I, I really try to tell people, hey, don't feel obligated to keep everything from deceased loved ones because they want you to have the, the life that you want. They don't want you just to be a museum for dead people. And I think my favorite quote on this in the book is, you know, the items you have from the past are stepping stones. You needed them then to get to the life you have now, but you may not need them now. And so I really, I really liked people to buy into that, that concept. And I'll say it again. Your items from the past are stepping stones. You needed them to get to now, but you may not need them to get to where you're going. And that's okay. And so, yeah, I spend a lot of time telling people to, you know, don't overwhelm yourself with guilt because guilt doesn't get your house cleaned. And, and if you don't get your house cleaned, you don't move on to that next step in life. And so, I mean, I hope it's therapeutic. I hope it's not therapy, right? I want people to, to know that they just don't need to carry that guilt. At the end of the day, it's just stuff. And again, when you tell those stories, it separates the love and affection you had from those people from the physical item that's in front of you. Matt Paxton, host of the Emmy-nominated PBS show Legacy List. We'll continue our conversation about his new book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz. It's great to have you along. Let's get back to my conversation with Matt Paxton, host of Legacy List on PBS. 
His new book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, is more than just a guide for decluttering. It's a personal and empathic look into why we hold on to objects that no longer serve us well. The book is divided into actionable steps. And here, Paxton explains step five, what to keep and how to create a legacy list. Oh, I'm so glad we're here. This is my favorite part. So Legacy List is the sh name of my TV show on, yes. on public television. We air and, it. Yeah, you do. And you got, and thank you so much, by the way. Last, <laughs> last time I talked to you, it was just a new show on TV. And now we are Emmy nominated. I've, I've found out that the emotions really do you know, pay off. But the Legacy List is a list of five or six items that matter most to you and your family to tell that family story. And I ask people to do that first before you go through the list of what you're going to give people really think through like you know for me it was it was really about my dad like i wanted my dad to live forever my dad had a four thousand square foot house and i couldn't keep it all i was a kid i lived in an apartment i lived in a one-bedroom apartment and i couldn't afford storage so i couldn't keep all the stuff so i really you know even at an early age i had to create this legacy list of what are the few items that matter to me to keep my dad's story going and as i've aged and matured i've learned that families need that too and when you pick these five or six items you pick these five or six items then it sets kind of a foundation for what's important to your family story and to your story and what you'll end up finding is once you've created that legacy list you really have that just firm amount of items that matter and then you you don't keep as much of the little stuff because you've already you know, told so many amazing stories about the loved ones in your family. And so then you don't need a hundred items from grandma. You've got the one on your legacy list that matters. I think if I can, can I tell the, my, my favorite legacy list item? I hope you would. It was a cookbook from my mom and my parents were divorced when I was six. So I, I never really knew my parents together. And so it wasn't really a bad thing. Right. And so when my dad got sick, my mom went to his parents. I mean, so, so imagine this being divorced from a man for 20 years. And then you go visit his mother and father. And she got all of the recipes from his side of the family. So my great-grandmother, my grandmother's, and even then my mom's recipes. And then she went to her side and she wrote down all the recipes from her mother and her great-grandmother. And then all the old ladies at church filled in the rest of the recipes. And my mom gave this book to my dad right before he passed away. So it was all that my dad loved books. So and he loved family stuff. And so this was a gift my mother gave to my dad at the end of his life. Of course, I ended up getting it, you know, soon thereafter. But now fast forward, this is a book in my mother and grandmother's handwriting of all the recipes I ate as a child growing up. And fast forward to Thanksgiving this year in Atlanta, Georgia, 20 years later, I'm with my stepkids and we're making my great grandmother's apricot pies. And I'm getting to tell my young stepsons about all these amazing people in my family and they're listening. They're actually listening to these stories and to, to get an eight year old boy to listen to anything <laughs> is, is challenging, especially a woman that he will never meet, but they hung on to the stories and they loved it. And it's all because of a cookbook. That is a legacy list item. That's so beautiful. Your mom sounds extraordinary. You write, that she also helped you clean your dad's house after he passed away and having 
been divorced for 20 years, she certainly had no obligation to do that. No, my my mom is an amazing mother. I, I was lucky to be raised by a lot of powerful, strong, really amazing women. And now I'm still surrounded by that with my, my fiance and everybody in my life. You know, I'm very, very lucky there. My mom really, yeah, it's funny. The older you get, you realize how selfless your parents were. I guess you don't understand it at that time. It was kind of a, it didn't even, wasn't a big deal to me when my mom did that. But yeah, 20 years later, after myself going through a divorce, it's like, yeah, you're right. That was amazing that my mom helped me clean that first house out. And it's just who she is. And I hope that I, you know, I hope anyone listening will be, be, give that kind of compassion and that kind of love because my mom was there for me. She wasn't there for my dad. She was there for me. And I hope I always treat all of my kids that way. Matt, I have a confession now. Oh, my gosh. I hadn't thought about asking you this, but now I'm going to. My mom passed away almost 12 years ago, and I still have a bottle of the fragrance she wore. Oh, I love it. And every now and then, I'll just take off the cap. What do you think of my hanging on to that bottle of Chloe. I love it. That is ex- absolutely a wonderful legacy list item because there's, for me, oh, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, to me, there's two things, smells and then signatures, like our parents' yes. signatures, right? Their handwriting. That's always deeply personal for me. And I love when I find, a, like just the other day, I found a, somebody mailed me from my old church. They were cleaning out the music room and they found my grandfather's music. And it was his handwriting. And I saw his, he, he, he did this big extravagant L because he, he thought he wanted everybody to see it, right? He was a great guy. And, um, but very confident for a man of, the, of World War II. <laughs> and, uh, and it was his handwriting. And I looked at it and I realized he was 14 when he wrote it when I looked at the date. So it was two years before he went to the war. But I love the handwriting, right? And so it's funny you say that. Like, I love that you have something that smells like your mother because scents scents are so personal, deeply personal. And I've actually, we come across that a lot. But what would your fiancé say about it? Well, my fiancé, the minimalist, that's sitting right next to me right now. She would choose love over simplicity any day. I mean, what an amazing, actually, it's a great item because it's small and then really powerful. Right. Like, I mean, listen to the emotion in your voice when you talked about it. You're thinking about your mom. Yeah. But I also was thinking, do I need what was probably a 15 or 18 year old bottle of Chloe on my shelf? Well, we don't need anything in life except each other. Okay. (laughs) So get rid of that theory right there. But it sure makes you enjoy life better. One thing about minimalism and simplicity, it's not about starving yourself of memories in life. It's about making space for that. And so what I, what I would argue is you did the right thing by emptying your mother's house and getting rid of the 99% of the stuff that didn't matter, but you kept and, and saved for the right thing. I mean, what an awesome gift to have that, to be able to smell that. And someone's listening right now and they're saying, yep, my grandfather smelled like X or Y. And like... I'm thinking of the my grandfather's aftershave. It was, you know, my, my grandfather, he was a farmer and a preacher. And he um, would shave on Saturday nights if he needed it or not. That's what he always said. <laughs> but it was the only time he, he showered and shaved was Saturday nights. And I can I can smell his, his aftershave right now. It's a very distinct thing that brings that memory back. And just because you shared that story, 
there's a lot of people listening right now thinking about what someone they loved smelled like. And that's awesome. Like you just shared a legacy list item and you told the story. You did exactly what I talk about in this book. And now people are going to hear that and they're going to, they're going to have a really fond memory. And so I love it. Like, that's awesome. But you made space in your life to have that memory versus keeping so much stuff that that's in a box and you never see it. You never enjoy it. So I actually say you did the right thing. Oh, thank you. Step nine is about moving and you titled the chapter move forward in a very upbeat way. What's the ultimate takeaway from this section, Matt? Okay. So the part we haven't told is I fell in love halfway through writing this book. I started the book and I was in Virginia with my three sons. I was a single dad in Virginia. And I finished the book in Atlanta, Georgia with my fiance and my now seven kids. I fell in love halfway through writing this book and I actually had to rewrite it because I had a lot of tips. I had a lot of information, a lot of advice, but I didn't have the emotion. And what happened is when I had to move, I got really scared and I got really nervous. I had this thing called FOMO, fear of missing out. I was afraid of missing out on the stuff. I was afraid of missing out on the people in my life where I was moving from. And it got to the point where I almost didn't move. I called my girlfriend at the time and I just said, I don't know if I can do this. This is too hard. And she goes, well, I'm here in Georgia. And if you want to be with me, that's where you got to go. And I had to make the decision. Am I going to stay in one place with all my stuff? Or am I going to risk it, get rid of a lot of stuff and go somewhere new and have that potential life with her? And this is very dramatic. I know that, but I'm fine with it. And um, obviously I chose to go. I took a leap of faith and to move forward because I say move forward because, and, and the reason, by the way, the reason I rewrote the book was I realized a lot of my advice without the emotion was kind of malarkey, right? <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't realize, I, I've been given advice for 20 years, but I hadn't had to follow it. It's only you have to follow it and you have to go through the emotions that my clients go through every day. It changed everything. And so that's why I rewrote the book the way you, you see it with the tips and in chronological order and all that. But at the end of the day, the punchline of the book is real simple. You're going to have to make a decision to either stay in the past or move forward. And the stuff allows us to blame and, and not take that step forward. If you're contemplating moving, it's because you do want to change or, or something's making you change. Right? But I put that word forward very intentionally on purpose. It's a reason it's there because if you can let go of the stuff, you can keep the memories, you can go anywhere. And think about that in life. Right? I don't care what age you're at. Life's still there. And there's still new things to do and there's still new experiences to do and you can move forward with it. And so I did, I took a leap and I did it and man, did it pay off. Someone asked me the other day, well, what stuff could you not let go of? And I'm like, I don't, I have no idea. I don't remember, but I remember it was really hard, but I, I cannot tell you what item it was. So I sure don't miss it um, because I'm too busy with this new life that I have. I got seven kids, you know, I, I, ended up, I ended up writing a book. I mean, I, I, my life is so much better that I took a chance and moved. And I'm so glad I didn't just quit and stay. You also address the emotion, really, what can be the trauma of moving for much older people and provide a list, all kinds of resources about different agencies and different types of retirement communities. It, it, it's very detailed. And you are 
quite generous, Matt, in sharing your resources in an appendix. Would you describe how you present this? Yeah, so the appendix is, there's two parts of it. The first part is the top 100 items that people always ask me about. A little bit of this is selfish, I will be honest with you. I get 10 emails a day about these first 100 items. And so I was thinking, well, if I put this in here, I won't get as many emails because I feel obligated (laughs) to write people because people ask me for help and I'm helping them on TV. And so if I don't help them, it's really not fair. And so I was hoping the book would help with that. And what it is, is the top 100 items, I put them in alphabetical order. If you either want to have them appraised, you want to sell them, you want to donate them, or you want to get rid of them. It has all the places you can go to do that. So whether it be stamps or coins or jewelry or shoes, like anything, it's all in there. What I've learned is I used to hold these things into myself because it was, it's my business, you know, so I make, so I support my family, but there's so much, so many people that need help. I'm not losing business by giving you my tips, right? I'm actually just helping more people. And I've learned in life, if you try to make money, it usually doesn't work out, (laughs) but if you help people, it normally does work out. And so when I was writing the book, I was like, okay, I got to stick to that theory. Just focus on helping people and, and life will work out. And so when I did that, I said, I got to give it, I got to give everything. I got to give like no more secrets. I got to give all my advice. And so I put that in there and then I put all my resources. And so the reality is if you're going to do it by yourself, you were going to do it anyway. So I might as well give you everything I got. So the second part of this, this appendix is every company that I've ever worked with from, from junk removal to professional move managers to moving companies, even to cleaning supplies. It's all in there. So if you're thinking of of tackling this yourself, the book will pretty much walk you through everything you need to do and then also give you the emotional support to do it. And then it gives you each chapter has a story, usually a funny and positive story about what one of my clients went through as well, because I don't ever want you to think that you're alone. There are millions of families going through this right now. Every day, there's million. Now you only go through it once, but you're going through it, and so I don't want people to think that they're alone. So the book was was really there to just put it all on the line, and uh, and I did go emotionally because I think with emotions we we listen more and learn more. And so I went for it, and I and I'm really proud of it. Honestly, I'm, I I know it helps people, and I've started to get now that it's out. I've started to get emails. People are like, man, you, you not only did you help me, but I really had started having conversations with my grandkids and my adult children not only about my stuff, but about my life. And so I think, I think people are actually listening to my advice <laughs> and they're actually, you know, they're actually having more conversation with their kids and their, and their grandkids. And I love, that's probably my favorite part about the book. Matt Paxton, the author and host of the Emmy nominated PBS show Legacy List. More information about his new book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, is available on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Atlanta's street photographer Brandon May. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Atlanta has bold, exciting architecture and design. From its skyline downtown to the High Museum, the sports stadiums, and MARTA stations. 
Atlanta street photographer Brandon May captures these sites and the people who walk alongside them. In his works, which have appeared in international exhibitions as well as locally. When City Lights producer Summer Evans talked with Brandon May about his artwork, he first explained how he got into photography. I started photography around the age of 12. My, my dad, he was really in, into photography. He really got me started in it. I know that I that he had a camera that, that he really loved. I think it was a Olympus camera, like a 35 millimeter. He let me use it a few times. I believe that I broke it from what I can remember, but that's pretty much where I, where I got my start was with my dad and he was really into it. So I just continued to take pictures throughout my life and here I am. And so did he teach you how to develop in a dark room film photography? He went over the steps with me, but I really didn't learn that until I got to, to high school. And when I actually took like a a traditional photography class and my school was lucky enough to have a dark room where we were able to, to do that and develop our own film and so I learned that process a little bit later maybe like four or five years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah and learning darkroom photography can really help you learn about shadows and lighting mm-hmm. and everything because it's in black and white you know. Yeah exactly. To tell a story is a little bit more difficult than with color. Exactly it's a it's a steep learning curve very steep. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm assuming that you've switched over entirely to digital now. Yeah, I, I made that switch probably maybe like a year after I learned how to do the darkroom thing. <laughs> I was ready for like a more modern take on it. And I didn't have access to a darkroom like during the summers. So I really did have to make that switch to, to digital photography. What I do enjoy about your photographs is the fact that even though it's shot with a digital camera, there's still an element of film, like a graininess, and most of your photographs are in black and white. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why you like to create your photographs to look black and white rather than with color? Well, black and white is, in my opinion, a little bit, a little bit more forgiving. You can miss your, your shutter speed or your ISO can be off, but you could still get a, a great, a great image out of it. And also like you can get really deep, deep and dark blacks and shadows using black and white. But mostly, I, I think I'm drawn to black and white and, and the grain uh, because of Gordon Parks and, and Bernie's Abbott and photographers that I um, that I look up to, you know, because they got started in 35 millimeter film um, and that's kind of grainy. So maybe I'm, part of me is just trying to emulate them in, in their work. For those unfamiliar with those photographers like Gordon Parks and Louis Mendez, can you describe their work and how it inspired yours? Well, Gordon Parks, he really does draw you in into like his into his images. He, he tells a story from from start to finish. If you look at the subjects that he he takes pictures of, they're usually black people throughout the South. So you see in a lot of his images, you see like just the everyday life, but you also see like the pain and the struggle of, of just the everyday life of being a black person. I try to bring that into my photography. Street photography is a little bit more difficult to do that in, but I think because of how he frames these stories and how he frames these subjects in, in the picture, he paints a very good picture or an accurate picture of what maybe they're, they're thinking or what they're going, they're going through in their day. He's really been pretty influential in my work. And how do you showcase that in your street photography? Because I noticed that when you are shooting a lot of people, their faces are kind of covered either by shadows or their hat, their hoodie. Why do you, first off, like to hide their identities, but how do you 
also emulate the works that Gordon Parks did? I shoot kind of dark because I really do like the, the dark element and the, the, the mystery of the subject. And I also kind of want to give them a little bit of privacy. Um, they may not want their, their photo just online like that. So you can't really tell who they are. And Gordon Parks, he, he really didn't have that kind of element in his, in his work. Louis Mendez has some of that going for him in his work. And I think I, I draw on that and try to emulate that with, with my work. Mm-hmm. With your street photography, it really does make you feel like you're a fly on the wall. You know, these people are passing alongside the buildings and you're just kind of like mysteriously in the background because no one's looking into the camera. They're all kind of just going about their, their daily lives on the streets of Atlanta. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I, exactly what I, I want them to do. I don't want to like interrupt their day or interrupt whatever they're doing. I, I just want to capture a frame or a scene and, and let them go about their whatever they're going to do and try not to disturb whatever they're doing. Yeah. Have you ever come across someone that you have photographed on the street and been like, hey, I took this picture of you. Do you want to check it out? Usually if, if a person stops me and says like, what are you doing or why are you taking a picture of me? I usually tell them, you know, I'm a street photographer. Um, this is what I do. And I give them my card. I let them check out my Instagram. And I, I always send them a picture of the picture that, I, that I've taken of them via email so they can have that and know that like it, it's art and it's not like anything else but art. Every time that happens, they're usually very receptive and very happy to see the final product, even buy more prints of mine, which is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. So on top of doing street photography, you also photograph the architecture of Atlanta. And your work looks very futuristic, the way that you photograph the buildings. It's like alien-esque. And the symmetry is just so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. What is it about Atlanta's buildings that enamored you to photograph them? Growing up here, I think I seen these buildings and, and the skyline throughout my entire life. And I maybe have like a connection to them personally that like I kind of know them and I kind of like feel like whatever tone they, they kind of put out. And I think that's just because I've, I've just seen these buildings and I've walked past them. I've, you know, driven past them throughout my entire, my entire life. So I do feel like I have a connection to them and having a, a better idea of how they're going to look in, in the sunlight, how they look at nighttime, how shadows will cast off of one building onto another. It's just something that I've, I've just noticed my entire life, even before I started taking pictures. I just, I've seen these, seen how the, how the, the city is, is set up and, and how the buildings kind of align with each other. How often will you go out exploring in the streets shooting? I would like to go every day. For the most part, I do get out in the morning, Monday through Friday. After I drop my son off at, at school, I'm usually headed downtown to get some some frames and get some shots. So um, I spend maybe four or five days a week downtown for a few hours shooting. And that way I can get a consistent work ethic and, and try to see where the light's going to be and how it interacts with this building. And are there a lot of people coming out of out of buildings at this time, time of the day, if it's like rush hour or something like that. So as much as I can, um, I would like to get down there and shoot. Do you ever go exploring different parts of the city or do you kind of go back to the same buildings and just try to look at them in a different light or angle when in I, order to capture them? Yeah. When I, when I first started out, I would, I would go to like over by Georgia state and shoot. Um, and then I would, like the next day I would go like maybe down like little five at this point in my career, I kind of just know where I want to go. So like, I might just stay on one corner for a couple hours and I keep returning to that corner at different times of the day 
um, just to see what it looks like and see the people walking by and see how they interact with the buildings at, in the morning or um, you know, later in the day. So yeah, I do return to the same spot multiple times a week. I think people kind of get tired of seeing me <laughs> on the corner <laughs> every day doing the same thing. But, but it, I, think, I think that's the best way to, to really understand like how the light is going to flow through the city. And it's also a good way to like really work on your settings and understand how your camera works, which is returning to the same scene. I read that you left working at a small tech company in August of 2021 in order to pursue photography full time. Can you talk about why you decided to do that? Yeah, well, photography has always been in my life. Um, and I've always been told by my dad to like, you know, you should really just quit your job and do photography and, and really pursue that. And my wife has said the same thing over the years. I think not having the time to actually go out and shoot and really um, set my own hours in doing so really kind of pushed me to leave my job and, and to pursue photography. Also, it gives me a lot of a lot more time to spend with my family and spend with my kids, especially my son, who you know has been diagnosed with autism. It's just a little bit more freedom to spend my time the way that I I like to spend it. Mm -hmm. And as I was exploring your Instagram, I saw these beautiful photographs of your three kids. Yeah, um, the twins are boy and girl, Jackson and Ruby, um, and our oldest is Isabella. She's she's nine. Yeah, so I, I took a lot of pictures of them when I like when they were first born and throughout their, their early childhood. And I still take a lot of pictures of them to this day. That's also another love of mine is taking their portraits and um, taking pictures of them doing the silly things that they do throughout the day. I really do enjoy that. What is it like photographing them, like kind of through their eyes? Because I noticed you don't just take these posed photographs of your children. It's really them, like you said, being silly or kind of exploring, looking up at the sky after they released a balloon. <laughs> How do you like reflect what they're looking at through their eyes? I guess I just, I just keep shooting and I, I interact with them the best that I can while I'm shooting. And so they're always just in their own world, interacting with each other or other people. So I'm just, I'm just really just taking pictures of, of them and, and how they see the world. So like I, I try to get down on their level and, and get close to them and, and just see what they see. Yeah. Well, it's beautifully done. Thank I, you. I, it makes me <laughs> smile when I went through your Instagram. <laughs> Lastly, Brandon, what advice would you give to up-and-coming photographers who are looking to do street photography or architecture or even just shooting portraits of people? Always bring your camera. Don't stop shooting. Bring your camera everywhere you go. That's the best way. That's one of the ways that I've learned how to, how to play with my settings and, and really get a, a full grasp and understanding of my camera. It's just always take it. Take it to church, take it to the grocery store, or hospital, school always take it with you. It should be connected to you, like your wallet or your phone. You should always have it around your neck and be ready to shoot because you never know. I think the more you shoot, the more times you press your, your shutter button, the more experience you get each time. So you just have to have the discipline to bring it with you and be the one in the corner with a camera <laughs> and, be, and be willing and ready to shoot. Atlanta street photographer Brandon May. You can see his works on his website, BAMTOG, that's B-A-M-T-O-G dot com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Monday at 11 a.m. 
actor and country musician Kiefer Sutherland joins us ahead of his upcoming performance at Eddie's Attic. Plus, Atlanta author Nicole D. Collier shares the story behind her heartfelt middle grade novel, Just Right Jillian. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.